0: As CMO of Morgan Stanley, Alice oversees the firm's global brand strategy and go-to-market platform, encompassing all marketing campaigns, sponsorship assets, and digital properties. She is a key member of the firm's leadership team and is leading a significant marketing transformation to help propel Morgan Stanley into the future as a prosperous house of brands following the acquisition of brands like Solium Capital, Eaton Vance, and E-Trade. Today, she's leading a significant effort to evolve the Morgan Stanley brand following a number of acquisitions and enable the brand to show up in modern, innovative, and unexpected ways. She fostered a new partnership with 19-year-old tennis pro Layla Fernandez and is really pushing the boundaries to position Morgan Stanley for the future. Here we also speak about our new Rebecca Minkoff, Morgan Stanley Banker Bag and how we're changing the game for women on Wall Street. Take a listen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rebecca. It's great to be here. So I would love to kind of touch on your early beginnings. Okay. We both started from the bottom. Now we're here. I know. It's (laughs) amazing. So what got you interested in the world of finance and money and banking and a world notoriously known for being obviously male dominated.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I don't think I ever planned getting into banking and finance. I left home as, as you know, when I was 19. And I think part of that was, you know, I set a plan for myself. I said, you know, what do you want to, what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? I didn't know specifically, but I knew I wanted to leave and strike out on my own. So I did that. Um, And home was where? My home was in New Jersey. Okay. So I was born in Forest Hills, Queens, and then I lived in New Jersey my whole life. Okay. Um, I went to secretarial school right out of high school. So I did that for a year, saved up enough money through secretarial school. I did, you know, I was a day camp counselor. I worked in a pharmacy. I sold greeting cards, anything I could to make some money. Uh, and then I started out as a secretary, and that's when I moved out. From there... I went back to school at night right away, so it took me a little over a decade to get my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree while I was working full time and getting promoted through the ranks. And I think what I started to see uh, and what I liked about what I did was the jobs that I had, whether it was human resources or sales and marketing or product management as I experimented throughout my career, all of them had one thing or two things in common. They work, uh, I was working for a brand that I really loved and respected and felt it was like a really strong consumer brand that had synergies with my own personal values, you know, things like giving back to the community and diversity and inclusion. So that was one element. The second was I wanted to do something that made people's lives better. Um, But I didn't have the patience for being a teacher. I didn't have the education and skills to be a doctor but I did have the skills and the background and experience to be in marketing and financial services. And what I've seen is financial services, although you know you have to do it well, you have to do it right, you have to do it ethically. And when you do all of that, it does help people improve their lives. You know, you're saving for your retirement or you're saving for your daughter's wedding. Um, you get your TV for your Super Bowl party, whatever the case is, um, it's all about helping you do the things that let you live your dreams, and I found that to be really interesting.
0: So your first step after you graduated was where in on the CMO track. Like after I graduated, I had spent about 10 years at ATT just
1: experimenting. I was in technology roles, HR roles, capability roles, operations, and marketing, and I found out that I really loved marketing. Uh, and so when I looked at leaving at and I said, you know, what's a firm that's an amazing marketing firm? And, and American Express was one of the first that came to mind. So I went to American Express and I started out in a, in a team that was on the marketing team, but it was really focused on doing um, product sales in call centers. Uh, at that time, telemarketing was really big. Uh, We did all our sales and service in call centers. And so I started out there and then sort of built the skills in terms of understanding operations, understanding technology and capabilities, and then ultimately getting into a core marketing role, which was the membership awards program, where I really designed from beginning to end, you know, re-looked at the visual identity, did a photo shoot for photography, relaunched the brand, thought about new and different ways to market it and segmentation. So that, I would say, at American Express is really when I started down that CMO track. And the advantage I had was I didn't just have the traditional marketing skills of branding and, and um, direct mail and some of those things, uh, but I had all of technology and digital experience and capability understanding. And I'd done roles in product management, so I understood understood the P&L So bringing all those things together, I think, really prepared me for sort of the modern CMO role. So
0: a modern CMO at one of these big financial institutions is very different, let's just say, than a CMO at an advertising company or a CMO at Rebecca Minkoff. So how are those skills different and what did you have to sort of learn once you were sort of immersed in that world? Okay.
1: You know, I think the first thing I'd say is probably a little different and and I was at a retailer for a while as well. And what I found in in some of these large corporate financial services firms, the softer skills sometimes come into play and are really important. Navigating the organization. Uh, knowing who the influencers are and how to sort of influence and persuade them to your point of view, ensuring that you're getting the right people involved at the right points in the process so that you have buy-in all along the way. Um, That type of political navigation and maneuvering is really important in a large company and doing it well is really important if you want to get the resources and the funding and the eyeballs within the company on the things that you and your team are doing.
0: I liken it to a chess game. Like, I felt like we had several women come into my organization, yeah, uh, not the best people, who were experts at navigating the chess game. And I'd be like, wow, if I had to compete with them for a job, they would win.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Every time. It's, it's funny because, um, you know, that's the other thing. You have to really balance. Um, and I think what's helped me be successful and I try to mentor and coach other women is, You know, being true to yourself, being authentic, but understanding how the game is played and leveraging that to your advantage, I think, is is important.
0: And do you feel like that was natural to you or you were smart enough to be like, oh, this is how this game is played. Here I go.
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination. You know, one of the reasons I uh, moved out when I was 19, I had a very dysfunctional family and my dad was an alcoholic. And there was a lot of dynamics there where you had to be able to read a situation and know if it was time to shut up and get out, or if it was time where you could, you know, be a little bit more yourself. And so I always felt like I could read a room and read people more intuitively than maybe others. Uh, But some of it's a learned behavior, watching people who do it well within the corporate environment. You know, I had a lot of male mentors that really helped me because there weren't a lot of women uh, in senior positions who had successfully navigated the organization. So leaning on those mentors And then having people who are people who can give you advice that are not within the company that you work, but are in other companies and dealing with
0: similar situations always was a help. What do you remember as your first big challenge or misstep at Amex? If you can share.
1: Um, There was one um, occurrence, which um, I, again, always use as an example in terms of um, just understanding uh, yourself and what's important. I was at a point where there's a there's a level change at American Express where you go from one VP and it's the type of VP role that you can post for and interview for uh, and earn on you know sort of through a process. There's a level change then where the next level is more where people pull you up. So it's not as much an open posting process as someone taps you on the shoulder and sort of says, hey, we think you're right for this role and we want you to consider taking it. And I was right at that verge and had to do a presentation for, uh, at the time it was Ken Chenault, the CEO, I had to do a presentation for Ken and all of the board of directors and the top 10% of executives in the firm. And I was one of a series of people who were doing the presentation. And so the first people got up and they were amazing. They were like Broadway, you know, actors. They got up, they said their lines, everybody applauded. It was wonderful. I got up and I had um, launched a new iPhone app for the firm. And we had seen great results, five stars in the app store, et cetera. And I looked around the room and I just froze. My voice started shaking. I couldn't breathe. At one point, I think it was like, <gasps> as I was oh, I getting to that. say my next uh, sentence, forgot half of what I wanted to say, rushed through the presentation, got off the stage. Uh, and my boss, who was away at the time, texted me and he's like, how'd it go? Horrible. Worst presentation I've ever given, said the same thing I just told you, You know, forgot what I wanted to say everyone I saw for the next 24 hours asked me how the presentation went and I said the same thing. So about a week later, my boss called me into his office and he'd been back from his travels and he's like, I wanted to follow up with you on your, on your presentation. You know, I talked to a few people in the audience and what they said to me was, Alice was the only person who had like real content in her presentation and an accomplishment that really was significant and meaningful. She did a great job at bringing data and facts to the table. And it was nice to see someone who was human on the stage and who you could tell was a little nervous, but knew their stuff and was fighting through it. And he's like, do you know the only mistake you made? And I was like, hmm, I'm not really sure. And he was like, talking about it for so long and so negatively afterwards. He's like, that is the only, you know, that's the only impression people are left with is, you know, sort of what you said. And and I really learned the hard way and took that to heart, just saying, you know, he's right. Like, first of all, I think that's definitely um, sometimes a woman's point of view where you're so hard on yourself and you're your harshest critic. Um, But just thinking about that bouncing, you know, being resilient, bouncing back was really important to me. And I learned uh, and I've also, you know, used this throughout my career where focus on what you do well not always what your shortcomings are Mm -hmm. and lean into what makes you different versus trying to be like everyone else. And I think when my career really took off was when I started doing that, where I started having, you know, taking self-doubt and turning it into self-confidence and feeling good about what I brought to the table versus always trying to look at my deficiencies based on what everyone else was good at.
0: I love that. And I feel like as someone who's a fellow self-doubter and Everything I do wrong, Mm -hmm. I I resonate with that so much because I think we we do become our harshest critics. And then you'll, you know, not that it's always men who do this, but they'll come in with the bravado and the confidence and you're just like, oh, I guess I could have faked it a little bit. Uh, Right, right. (laughs) So let's fast forward a bit. You went to Mm E-Trade, which then got acquired by Morgan Stanley. Usually in acquisitions, not everyone gets to stay, but Mm -hmm. they said you we're keeping you, we're making you the CMO. So what was that process like and how did you transform that jump into where you are now? Yeah, you know, I think in any acquisition, there's a couple of elements. Some
1: are things you can control and others are just a little bit of luck. I'd say the luck part for uh, those of us who are at E-Trade was Morgan Stanley really purchased the firm with very specific intentions. And that was to drive a growth strategy to open the firm up to broader audiences, new audiences and um, new capabilities. And E-Trade was a firm who had, you know, a much younger set of clients Um, people who had different wealth levels than those that do business with Morgan Stanley traditionally and was really known for their technology and their capabilities. And so it was a great marriage of two very different types of companies, um, which is the luck part, because you could be acquired by someone who is looking for more synergies and it's more of a cost reduction exercise Mm -hmm. than it is a driving revenue exercise. And so that part uh, worked out really well for us. The second, then, is we went through the integration um, where you're starting to look at, okay, what are all the functions that are performed and the skills that people have and how do you bring those things together? Um, the first thing I would say was important was to just let people know what what you bring to the table, what your skills were. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the early days And the whole acquisition was all during COVID. So we never, like I had never met anyone in person for the first almost two years of us all working together. So um, I did a lot in the beginning to try and get to know people. I did, um, you know, sort of happy hours over Zoom with mixologists to make sure they sort of got a sense informally of who we were and what the team was about. I did meet and greets with all of the key executives, and then I did the same with my direct reports where we did one-on-ones and shared some of the work we were doing, documents about the marketing strategies and our success stories. So spent a lot of time just letting them know who we were and why our work was different and what our work accomplished, and then who we were as people. And then as we started to get closer to where things would be more integrated, I started talking about what I would want to do and what I didn't want to do. And I learned early on in my career from people like the squeaky wheel gets the the grease and don't be afraid to ask for what you want, because the worst thing that can happen is you don't get it. Well, you're not going to get it if you don't ask anyway. So um, I shared what I was interested in um, and what I was good at and what my history was and uh, it, it sort of worked out in terms of my leader at the time, who's Andy Saperstein, recognized those things. We had gotten to have a great working relationship, and they really wanted to change the company um, to look at marketing as more of a strategic advantage versus being a more of a su- sales culture. And so it all worked out, and they offered me the CMO
0: role, and here we are. Wow. And so that brings us to why we're here today. Mm-hmm. So it's it's unlikely that uh, we would ever answer the phone and go, do you make banker bags? <laughs> um, and I know that within, you know, the banking industry, the duffel, you know, that you see men carrying has been a very much a signature of like, I'm going to go to the racket club in the morning with my bag and I'm going to go to the office. It's very tight into that. So when when we first heard, you know, from you and the team on this, I'm so curious, what made you go, okay, this is going to be the marketing initiative that we're going to, you know, approach Rebecca Minkoff for?
1: Yeah. So marketing to me, it's, it's really interesting because a lot of it is about storytelling um, and telling stories in an interesting and in a new and a different way. And so as we started to look at what do we want to do in terms of the Morgan Stanley brand and bringing that to life to these new audiences. So as I mentioned, you know, it's broader now and, and we've got people who are really young and just starting their financial journey to people who are ready to retire to large institutions and corporates. So how do you start to appeal to those audiences and to a more modern generation So as we looked at that, we said, you know, one of the ways that you do that is to look at old symbols um, of what things stand for and how do you start to challenge those things. And we did some proprietary research um, as we were looking at our diversity and inclusion agenda in terms of marketing. And the research showed us that women in finance, only 3% of them even had that old duffel Sort of banker bag, and fifty plus percent of them said, like it's it's not something that's for me, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't really feel inclusive. And then when you look at the financial industry as a whole, it tends to have that reputation yeah. where women find it intimidating. Patronizing and a whole bunch of things that you would hope were not the case. And so, one way we thought we could change that is taking sort of and reinventing something that symbolizes, you know, banking in some way. And so, as we thought about that, we thought, you know, who could we partner with? It'd be awesome to do something like that. And, um, You know, this woman, Jen, on my team uh, knew a little bit about your story and the fact that one of your first bags was designed off of that old banker bag and sort of modernizing it. And so we thought, what a great way to reinvent it once again.
0: Yeah. So the bag we're talking about was the original morning after bag. And I wanted um, something that could hold all your clothes. You could go out and still feel cool and go to the bar or the club, but have enough room in there for a sleepover. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we retired that bag many years ago, just because that size at the time felt like everything was going like, basically, you have your credit card and an iPhone now. Right. Um, and then this fall, we reintroduced that bag called MAB 2.0, but a little bit smaller. So when, when Jen contacted um, Mary on my team, I was like, well, that was the bag that was based off of a banker bag. And so what I'm so excited about is that we're relaunching it with you. And not only that, but you've inspired us to go one step further, which is, you know, sustainability is something that's incredibly important to me. And that's a word that is very vast in its definition of what it means. But we've had sustainable clothing, but never Mm -hmm. bags. And so now we get to introduce this beautiful, luxurious leather bag where the water is clean. The olive trees were not hurt yep. in the plucking of the leaves. And uh, you get something extraordinary that feels luxurious, but you also don't have to feel guilty over how it got there. Yeah. Yeah. So um, within taking an internal temperature in the firm, what has the response been from those that know about it?
1: You know, it's it's interesting because um, I think it, the firm is really progressive in terms of how they think about diversity and inclusion. And so the reception has been great. People are really excited about it. Executive support has been tremendous. You know, I think we've got so much interest as we talked about different ways we could activate that and bring it to life for our clients and for our employees everyone's volunteering, you know, I've got this summit that's happening with these women or with this group of investors or this area, and we'd love to be part of it. And how can we be part of it? So that's been really exciting. You know, I think the other thing that's been um, interesting is one of the things that has been important as we started to go down this new path in terms of our brand is making sure that employees felt good about it and that employees were engaged because they're the, your biggest advocate as um, as a firm. And so it's been well-received by our general employees that have been sort of let in because we're still keeping it a little bit um, in embargo, but um For those employees, they've been really excited about being part of it, um, doing something new and different. The firm hasn't traditionally done a lot of things that you would view as um, brand activations or public relations. So this is going to be one of the first times that we have really something where we're stepping outside of industry and doing something new and different.
0: So what I love about that, and there was a CMO who in 2020 did something, I feel like, similar to you. It was Lowe's, and they mm-hmm. said, we're sponsoring Fashion Week, which was totally nuts because you're like, hardware? <laughs> Power work. drills? Yeah. And- <laughs> But they were able to showcase a a furniture line that they had through different designers. It was myself and Jason Wu, and I believe Christian Siriano. So this is your first sort of entryway Mm -hmm. into the world of fashion. And, you know, we're going to have several of the bags on display at my presentation. And that's when we're launching this. So how did you get—that's a risky thing, right? You're going out on a limb to get the the, the eyes of the fashion world. How did you, A, have the confidence— And then B, you know, getting people on board. What skill was that that really said, okay, everyone's like, yes, this is crazy, but let's do it?
1: Yeah, I think one thing is in order to get people excited and rallied around something, you have to know what motivates them. In financial services, typically it's sort of profitability and revenue generation and new customer acquisition. And so the first thing we went about is just sort of helping to show people the value of women as investors and as business owners and other things. And so we looked at and presented it in the context of saying, you know, women represent a huge component of the decision makers in a household in terms of what they purchase and who they do business with. They've got a tremendous, they represent over 50% of the wealth. So there's, there's all of these factors in terms of what women mean for buying, buying power, wealth, and investment. And so we laid out that case for the firm. Then we talked about um, our traditional clients and the clients we were trying to attract through bringing on all these new technologies and capabilities like E-Trade and Eaton Vance. And it was this group of women you know, or um, clients in from ages 25 to say 45 that were not necessarily clients that were always attracted to Morgan Stanley. And so we talked about how they engage with the world, what's important to them, What are they purchasing? And then who are they doing business with? So when we looked at fashion, that was an industry in an area that um, emerging affluence or high net worth women were really interested in they were investing in. And then we looked at the different age groups um, and we even looked at your firm and company. It was sort of, hey, it's really appealing to the target audience that we're looking at. And so how do we bring those things together? And then the atmosphere of you know, sort of reinventing a Wall Street staple on the heels of trying to launch some new strategy around our brand, brought it all together. And then we put together a document and went around to all the different executives and groups, shared that with them, talked about why it was important, uh, got their feedback. So we made some tweaks to what we were doing in
0: terms of strategy and where we were looking. And then everybody was pretty much on board and aligned. So what do women in this demographic, I think my listeners are probably like bullseye with who you're targeting, what are they what can they do better when it comes to money and the intimidation that comes or you hear Morgan Stanley and you're like, "Oh, I don't have enough money to be with them." you know how do we begin to shift that perception? You know, I think some of it is um,
1: you know doing a little research about wealth and wealth management. And so when I first started with e-Trade, you know I didn't realize all the ways that you could start to invest that you could actually open an account, and start doing some investing on your own, whether that's through looking at packaged um, baskets of investment or, you know, I want to buy some Amazon stock or I want to buy Disney stock and actually doing those purchase. So there's a whole host of ways that you can do it from self-directed all the way through talking to a financial advisor and getting some advice from someone. There's also so many tools out there for women and for everybody There's Investing 101. We have all sorts of podcasts and webinars uh, and tools that just tell you the basics on why investing is important, what you should think about, uh, how you should do it, how you can get started. And you can do that digitally or you can talk to a human if that's what you want to do. And so I think some of it is just being curious and sort of getting out there and asking and recognizing that everybody's afraid. Have curiosity, start to you know read and learn as much as you can, talk to people, and then there are plenty of digital assets like E-Trade to get in there and, and learn a bit more. You don't have to invest uh, or start with every penny you have. You know, one of the first ways I started was I took, you know, I I saved up, I took $1,000. I put it in an account. I put it in a savings account to start uh, that had a higher interest rate. And I waited till I, you know, earned a little bit more till I got that to 1,500. And then I was like, I'm gonna buy my first, you know, stock. And I started to do that and it just grew over time. And so I think you can take small steps or you can take big steps, whatever you're comfortable with.
0: Yeah, and one thing to note, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it is every time I panic about the stock market, you know, my guy pulls out his chart and he's like, mm-hmm. over time, it always goes up. Yep, so up. even though we're entering somewhat of a scary time, it is still a safe place yeah. to put your money. Yeah.
1: I think the other thing people overlook um, and I look back and I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, I wish I did this a little differently one of the first ways and places we as people get to invest is through the 401k in the companies that we work with. And so investing in your 401k, if your firm offers that, um, investing enough that you get the full company match because that's kind of like money that your company's giving you to invest. And then the big mistakes I made um, were don't borrow against it and don't take any money out of it. Um, But if you do that for... Uh, a long time, over time, you really advance your plans and you build a really nice nest egg. And it's not as risky as maybe some of the other ways that you might do it. Yeah. Um, so. My husband
0: told me what he had in his 401k and I was like, wow, I never had one. So that's great for us, for leader. So I love to end my podcast with two questions for every one of my women what is a piece of advice that you'd like to pass on that you either learned the hard way or someone gave to you that you found valuable? Be the CEO of your own calendar. Mm. And what
1: that was about was um, the only thing sometimes you can control in, in the corporate life or, or when you're working is your own time. And so treat that as a valuable asset. Look at what you're spending your time on every day Is it the right things? Is it the things that's gonna drive you and your business forward? Um, Are you spending enough time with your family? All of those things are really important. So use your your calendar, schedule the things that are important to you, and then be really tough when it comes to people or things getting on there
0: that don't fit into those categories. I love that. I've become so tough lately. I know. (laughs) Before we left the office, they're like, they wanna get on a phone call. I was like, no. Yeah. Send it in an email. I
1: give my uh, EA a list that said, anyone who gets, wants to get on my calendar, ask them these four questions. Yes. Um, and if it's, you know, if they don't have the answers to
0: these, tell them to come back. I love that. I'm stealing that. Uh, last question for you is, what would we be surprised to know about you?
1: Um, I feel like I'm an open book. There's so many things that I always talk about. I would say probably um, one that I haven't talked a lot about is I'm a huge boxing fan. Really? Yes, I am. I have always been. So my my great-grandfather was a boxer. My brother did some amateur boxing. When I was a really little kid, we used to watch uh, boxing on a little TV on our kitchen counter Um, on Saturday nights uh, on Wide World of Sports. And um, I've always just found it really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is it's really an interesting sport in that many of the stories um, of people who are successful, they come from very meager beginnings, right? Tough beginnings, sometimes abusive beginnings, whatever the case is. And then they get to be the champion of the world in a particular area. And so just to see someone's progression from really early on to being the champion of the world is, is, is just exciting to me. The next thing is a lot of times the the groups that have been successful in boxing over time sort of follow the paths of immigration to the United States. You know, there's places where it was the Irish who were um, all the boxing champs and then the Italians, people of color, Mexicans, et cetera. And so it's really interesting to see them flow through um, in similar ways and success in that sport. And then finally in business, it's really been helpful um, in terms of just building rapport with people um, because it's a conversation starter. But then also you find a lot of people, especially people in different cultures who know a lot about the sport and who have had childhood um, sort of idols in the sport that I've been able to relate to.
0: But also the idea that you get punched real hard and these guys get back (laughs) up, right? And in our careers, and our life, it's like some people are think that that's not going to happen. Yeah. And I'm like, every day I get punched that hard. Yeah. It's like everyone has a plan until you're punched in the face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom with us and for making this exciting collaboration happen. We are so, the whole company, my company is abuzz with excitement. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you to Rebecca. We're really excited and you've been a great partner. Oh, awesome. I just wanted to thank you guys for listening to today's episode. I also want to ask you to rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I know it's a pain in the butt, but it actually helps with search and algorithms. So if you love this podcast, it is an easy way to get it more visible and out there. I also want you to follow me on Instagram at Rebecca Minkoff at Superwomen and be sure to check out my book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage and Success. Thank you again. And you will hear from me next week.